Hello, everyone. Kay here. This is H, and we're spilling all the art and architecture secrets you thought we'd never tell. Well, Kay, we're officially halfway through our spooky season series, and I'm a little heartbroken. I've enjoyed it so much, and I don't want it to end. Like, maybe we should just make this podcast, like, a spooky podcast. (laughs) Don't tempt me. (laughs) Do not tempt me, because that's where my true passion lies. Well, I'm very excited to jump into our topic today, but before we do... We thought we'd start the podcast with a fun discussion today that kind of ties into last week's episode a little bit. We're going to talk about ways to avoid being buried alive. This is a public service announcement um, because actually premature burial is quite a thing and it's a frightening thing and we just want you all to be equipped with this knowledge. In the event that it happens to you. So actually, a man named William Tebb collected a lot of information regarding the statistics around being buried alive. He collected this information in 1905. So up until that point, there were 219 cases of near live burial, 149 cases of people actually being buried alive, which is terrifying. Um, 10 cases of live dissection and two cases of people waking up while they're trying to be embalmed. (sighs) I don't like those odds. No, I think even one case is too many. (laughs) How you not know that they're dead? I will say, I think that technology has come a very long way since 1905, but this fear, um, which is known as taphophobia, created some interesting inventions so that people could avoid being buried alive. I think I might take advantage of one because like learning about this has made me fear it. I'm a taphophobe now. (laughs) So in 1868, there was a patent created, which basically was for a security coffin. And the coffin would have a rope that fed from inside the coffin to above ground where there was a bell tied. So basically, if you happen to wake up post-burial, you could ring, you could pull this rope that would ring the bell and would alert like a security guard that they would hire to watch over graveyards and cemeteries um, that, hey, somebody's alive down here. Uh, literally saved by the bell. Literally. I think it also had a ladder in it so that they could somehow yeah. like climb out themselves, which is. Yeah. So in the instance that there would not be a person that would magically hear the bell, they did have a ladder that they could climb out, which I would be a little um, scared shitless if I was in a graveyard or cemetery and um, (laughs) heard a bell start to ring. I'm not sticking around to help that person out of the grave. I'm fucking out of there. If they haven't put that in a horror movie already, they absolutely should. Because how fucking creepy is that? (laughs) 
I got yeah like the last thing I would do is like be in a cemetery alone like it's night and you hear a bell all of a sudden and you're just gonna be like oh someone needs my help I would be like (laughs) fuck and I would just (laughs) run away and never return just keep running she's still running (laughs) to this day oh god it's like I am not a runner so if you see me running you better start running too and that's me hearing I'm like that is a good enough reason for me to run. Do you know the difference between a graveyard and a cemetery? Yes. Living in Charleston, I feel like you should know this little tip. Yes, but I'm afraid I'm going to mix this up. Uh, a cemetery is attached to a church and a graveyard isn't. It's the other way around. Other way around, yeah. <sighs> I, as a child, I went on like all these ghost tours, which like no surprise. And I heard it on one of the first ones I went on. And that's all, that's always like a go-to like trivia or like fun fact that they reveal on every ghost tour. So me being the little know-it-all brat I am (laughs) and have been forever. Every time they'd ask that question, I was always like, "Mm, I know. And I would just be like, I know the answer. "Mm." Um, And that's actually like true. I would I'd be like, mm, yeah, graveyards attached to a church and a cemetery is not. So I knew as I said, yeah, I'm 10 I was, years old and I fucking know that's I'm God. I was the biggest know-it-all still am, but I've learned a little bit more to read the room uh, <laughs> or the graveyard or the graveyard or the cemetery, oh. which is not attached to a church. Moving right along another invention, you know, this is one way to do it. Um, a man <laughs> by the name of Timothy Clark Smith was so afraid of being buried alive that he required a window be placed above ground that had a direct view into his casket. Um, Like directly on his face. Yeah. Like centered on his face. Luckily today it has clouded over, but the window still very much exists, um, but you cannot see in it any longer. Like, I don't know. Was it written into his like will or in his like death wishes that like, I want these people to be the ones that just like watch over this window for how long do you wait? First of all, for people who are just viewing that, like imagine like walking through a cemetery and you just look down, you're like, oh, this looks weird. And you just see a dead face. Like, first off, no. Thank you. Second (laughs) off, second off. Okay. So say he woke up and he was staring through the glass, just like screaming, but like no one is around. How did that make anything like, better like i said did he have people that you know took shifts watching this window just looking for like a twitch i mean i i don't know i just i don't think this personally was the best method but (laughs) go off timothy clark smith (laughs) (laughs) there was also a design in 1887 that basically allowed for an airway down into the coffins and I think I could kind of get behind this. It just basically had a pipe um that, you know, went down into the coffin and then up through the ground to like above ground level and it also had an alarm on it. So the person if they happen to wake up and be alive and not dead, <laughs> they could like engage the alarm so it would sound, but also if like it took a while for somebody to get to them they wouldn't run out of air. So to me, like this makes, this makes some sense. I like, why are we yeah. doing this still? I mean, in the 21st century, people are still submitting, um, patents for 
coffins and other things that will like help prevent premature burials. So like this sort of apparently is still an issue. I think it's still like a phobia. I don't know that it's necessarily still like, and I would think at this point, like modern medicine, we should know at the, like, if you can't tell anything else with all the fancy medical equipment, like I would hope to God (laughs) you could at least determine is this person dead or is this person alive? I think it's probably very rare, but I do think that a couple months ago, I heard a story about a woman waking up in a morgue or something. Oh no. This definitely like occurred. Um, So your chances are never zero. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually so scary. It's so Um, scary. What I think is very funny is that one thing that they came up with like ideas to basically how to even not reach the stage where you might be buried alive. So um, one like idea that they tossed around was basically injecting people that they were like pretty sure were dead with like morphine or strychnine to like ensure that they are dead. I mean, like, I guess if I'm, like, that close to death, like, just make sure, like, that's fine. I don't think I would object to that. Yeah, but I think that's funny that they were like, this is the solution. We're going to make sure you're dead. <laughs> yeah, well, if you weren't dead then, you are now. This isn't really, this is kind of a, a way that one woman in particular avoided being buried alive. Her name is Hannah Beswick. And um, she left her entire house and estate to her doctor. And it was like the one stipulation that she couldn't be buried. So basically, she just stayed there. Like she just remained in her house. And eventually she was moved into like an old clock case, but um, she was never never buried and the doctor would open the clock case like once every year just to, like make sure hey girl but that's you're still, you're still doing good you need anything you still- <laughs> but that's how she like avoided being buried alive was basically just not being buried so I know a lot of people will say like ah oh, you know once I'm dead doesn't matter but then like what have you ever considered that you might not actually be dead <laughs> I know Oh God. Uh, I I do well, especially if you're like one of the people that's like for cremation. I mean that that's kind of like being injected with strychnine or morphine is like cremation it, is like one of those ways it's you're guaranteed. It's gonna uh it's gonna take care of things. <laughs> <laughs> Taking care of business. Cremation. <laughs> that's the tagline. Ugh. <laughs> uh. So this is just a fun, totally unrelated to today's topic, kind of related (laughs) to last week's topic. Last week we talked about what happens with your body after you die. Maybe we talk about today what happens to your soul when we die. Because I think there's one artist in this world who seem to have a really, really good idea of what happens. I would also just like to add that this artist is the love of my life. Um, I have Your a lot of favorite those. of all time. My favorite of all time. Daddy Hieronymus Bosch. This man, I'm not entirely convinced that he was a man. Like, I feel like he's some like immortal or cryptid or demon or alien or something because like, 
I mean, we'll get into it, but like his art is like nothing that I think has ever been seen like before or since he was painting in like the late 1400s, early 1500s. So that's kind of weird to say, but like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like more modern or surrealist or insane. And he just seemed to have like such a clear idea of like what he was depicting. Like it wasn't from any like religious text or convention. It was just like unprecedented, totally out of his brain. And I just feel like he knew something that we didn't like this man is like, like other artwork. He was giving us a glimpse into like whatever different world he was living in. He's like, sup dudes, I'm from hell and I'm going to show you hell because like so many artists throughout history has have like tried to depict hell. None of them have achieved it as effectively as Bosch did. It's like Bosch was like there and he was just like, mm-hmm. oh, cool. I'm going to paint this just the way you would paint a landscape. Like he yeah. witnessed some shit. He witnessed well, some shit. Like, I, I know that like artists are creative, but just the way that he was able to depict these creatures that I just don't even know how you could conjure them up like in your imagination. And I think that's like what Kay's getting at. It's like, where the hell did he get the ideas for these like creatures? I mean, even things in your dreams and your subconscious, like, or how you imagine like otherworldly or fantastical things or whatever, usually stem from something that you've seen before Mm -hmm. you've heard described or is you know, it's like conventional knowledge or whatever. This guy, he's on some other plane of existence. He also gets credit for like his realism though. Like his, these, his other paintings, like the ones that aren't like the nightmarish, like twisted ones. Those are the ones we're going to focus on, obviously. But like, they're so well done. And like, he paints with such realism. And even though like crazy out there, I mean, there's such a like realistic quality to them that I mean it's unbelievable what's really interesting about Bosch and what further proves my theory of I don't think this man is from this planet is that no one really knows like anything about him at all like his birth date how he spent his life which paintings of his he did and didn't paint like no one knows who this person is Hieronymus Bosch like that doesn't even sound like a real person so Hieronymus Bosch, as we know him today, um, was originally born Hieronymus van Aken, um, which is kind of the family name, but he adopted the name Bosch from the place where he lived, which was commonly referred to as Den Bosch. And it's actually pronounced Boss in Dutch. We know a little bit about his family background. His grandfather, father, and several of his uncles were all painters. And so it's believed that he would have picked up some of the like stylistic qualities and just like ideas from growing up around artists and paintings. He was living during the time of like the Northern Renaissance. And that was just such a time of like exploding culture and art and literature. And so he would have been surrounded by a lot of that and influenced by a lot of that. So the first written record was a municipal record that was written in 1474 when Bosch is named along with two brothers and a sister. We also know that sometime between 1479 and 1481 that he was married. Then we know in 1516 from an account of the Brotherhood of Our Lady um, that that was the year that he died. So very little is known about sort of his like origins. We know a little bit of background about his family, a little bit about his like middle life. And then we do know when he died. We don't really fully know his personal beliefs, his artistic intent 
how he spent his life, what happened to him in his life, we can only really guess based on the little record that we have and the context of the day and what other artists were depicting and why they were depicting those things. It just really adds to the mystery of this guy because it's just Bosch, like, he's just the stuff of legend at this point. It's like he, we, we knew he existed and that's about it. Just to add to the mystery, Bosch never dated any of his paintings, and he only signed just a few of them. And as of today, only 25 paintings remain that can actually be attributed to him. There's a lot that we that people still wonder if they were his, or at the very least, they had to be like a close follower of his, because a lot of people did try to imitate his styles. I believe he was like one of the most like imitated artists of all times. There is you know, some confusion as to like what actually is his and his alone um, in these remaining artworks that we have. He's not one of those artists that only gained notoriety after he died. Like he was a successful and well-known artist at the time that he was living and he was doing something that nobody had really ever seen. And so even while he was alive, people were like copying his art style and maybe even learning from him. I mean, I don't know. But by the time of his death, there were already a lot of imitators. And then that continued on throughout history because no one had done or ever really did anything quite like Bosch. So it's hard to say what all he painted. But like you said, we are able to attribute at least a few to him. And we know that they came from him. He definitely started this style and this movement, whatever the hell you can call it. So their traditional Flemish painting style was one that was very smooth and the surface would have been heavily primed and then many layers of paint would have been applied to try to give it a really smooth finish. And that was basically to mask the idea that it was man-made. But Bosch kind of did the opposite. So he did not prime his surfaces as much. He was okay kind of painting on a rougher surface. He also didn't lay down lots of layers and he was even known to use like a palette knife or even his thumb in certain areas to kind of achieve the look that he wanted. And so overall his paintings are known to be really textured and a lot rougher than other painting styles of the day. He definitely was rebelling against the norm because the Renaissance was a big focus on classical art and that ideal form, that ideal image, like everything's elevated and perfect. And he really didn't want his art to appear that way at all. So like you said, we really see that in his techniques, but we also see that in his subject matter, which we'll continue to detail. But for me, what is always interesting is I think art during this time was often depicting the wealthy or the well-known or a religious figure, somebody very important. But a lot of his paintings were just showing peasants, commoners, average people, or it was showing like really dark things like demons and these like hellish creatures. But like the buildings would be crumbling and rough and dirty and the streets would just be like what you would imagine a peasant village to look like. And there would be everyday objects and utensils around, like even in his most fantastical paintings, this would have been very recognizable just to the common folk. And I think a lot of art during this time period was not focusing on them at all. In fact, it was probably pretending like they didn't even exist. And so 
I don't know, like just that alone, like his technique and his subject matter depicting the more mundane and just being rougher and less polished and more real made him stand out. So Bosch is really good at capturing like zones in his paintings. Like you'll see like the horizon line and in most of it, you can kind of see like even in the triptychs, there's like a clear horizon line and you see like maybe the background is sort of paler. And then you have like the main portion that's like, you know, a deeper color. Um, and he also used aerial perspective a lot, which is something that we really didn't see in any of the other Flemish paintings during this time. I think that this like use of aerial perspective allowed him to fit all those little details and all those little like figures and creatures and like crazy things in there. Cause to me, his paintings just have so much to them that I, when I look at them, you get lost in them. And it's like, I wouldn't even know that you could capture so much in one painting. Yeah. Most artists at this time were depicting like really classical compositions or it was like up close subject matter, or it was just one scene, or even if it was like a broad panel or triptych or, you know, a series of paintings, it still was just like very focused in on like this tiny little detail. And the composition would have been, flatter, I suppose, or just more zoomed in and definitely a very conventional way of balancing out the scene. So giving a visual harmony, having a clear foreground, a clear background, a focal point, one central element that your eyes automatically drawn to. But Bosch, you know a Bosch painting when you're looking at it because it's just he, every corner of his canvas, he has covered in just teeny tiny like little miniature scenes like there's probably like 300 different things happening in one of his paintings and it's all kind of given equal standing because there's not really a focal point in a lot of these or you know there's so many focal points that your eye just keeps jumping around there's so much to look at like I've looked at some of his paintings just repeatedly and I still like I don't think I've seen even close to all of it. Like we just don't have time to unpack all of it. His composition was just totally unique and totally different because he just scattered as much as he could onto his canvas. And it was all kind of supposed to be looked at with equal reverence. All of the paintings that we're going to talk about today that Bosch did are depicting these larger scenes. They're kind of all telling this one story or delivering this one message. But because there's so much going on in them, they're split into several different panels that are all combined together into one piece. The first of these is actually a quadriptych, which means that it's made up of four wooden panels that all connect together. And this piece is called Visions of the Hereafter. A lot of his works were commissions for churches. We don't necessarily know if this one was or not but it is currently housed at the Doge's Palace in Venice and definitely conveys a religious message. As Kay said, this is a quadriptych and um, something very special about this is that um, when I was studying abroad and I went to Venice, I actually got to see these four pieces. Um, I just, I'm a huge art lover, if you could not tell (laughs) from the fact that, you know, we have an art and architecture podcast. And I was in Venice. My mom came to visit and I was like, oh my God, I want to go in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Venice. Um, so we did. And I had no idea, but they actually had recently restored several of Bosch's pieces. They had them on display in the art museum. Um, and 
some of them were these four um, panels. So Bosch is my favorite artist and he was my favorite artist long before this, but I would have loved to see my face when I like walked around and saw like the huge sign basically saying that this was this um, special exhibit that they were housing, like this Hieronymus Bosch exhibit of these like newly restored pieces. I probably could have cried. Like my mom was with me and she knows my love of Bosch, but I'm sure she didn't like understand it, but she was very willing to look at all of them with me. And actually the pictures that I have of them that will be the ones that we posted to Instagram are courtesy of my mother. Um, so I appreciate that. <laughs> shout out um, to D. Shout out to D. So the way that they were hung in the palace and also when I viewed them, um, but we don't necessarily know that this was the order that Bosch intended us to view them in, was fall of the damned into hell and then hell. And then there would be a space followed by terrestrial paradise and then ascent to the blessed. So that's going to be the order that we kind of talk about them today. I would say Bosch excels in conjuring up these dark, twisted fantasy creatures. And in both Fall of the Damned and the Hell and Hell, um, like no two creatures are the same. Um, and actually, in a book I have on Bosch, somebody has recreated sketches of each of the creatures that he has in these paintings. And there is such a contrast. I mean, just, so basically this is a painting of these humans being grabbed and sort of tormented by these hellish creatures. Um, And they are falling down towards what looks like this cloudy, fiery pit. And you can almost see up at the top, there's slightly like bluer or cooler light being shown down. So you kind of get the idea that they're sort of falling from, I don't want to say grace, but they're like, they're falling from somewhere much nicer to where they're about to end up. I think what really emphasizes their fall into hell is the verticality of the piece. So each panel is very tall and narrow like you were saying, it's very dark, like even fully restored. It's sort of hard to make out. It's like they're falling into darkness, but the only illumination is from this fire, which is just this incredibly rich, bright, blood red, this really vivid orange. And it highlights the flailing limbs and the anguish and fear on the faces That's really what you see more than anything in Fall of the Damned is just the total sense of fear and terror that these people know that they're about to face. But you can't make out much else, which just only adds to that disturbing sense. So then we move on to the hell portion of this quadriptic and in this one, it's a little bit clear. There's like this craggy cliff that almost looks like there's like flames shooting off of it and behind it and in the like foreground we see I would say the biggest figure it is like this man who's just in total despair with like his head hung down and there's this like winged gargoyle like creature like grabbing onto his arm Um, and then we see another creature that looks like it's kind of on top of or like almost consuming this other person that's half hidden. We just see their legs 
Um, and then sort of in the middle, there's this almost sort of eerie lake of sorts. And we can see sort of like thrashing about in the water of like creatures and humans. And um, there's this like burnt twisted tree. And really a lot of what you see in this, as far as like the landscape portion of it is sort of in silhouette. It's just very backlit by what looks like these you know, crazy flames, but there's really no fauna, like living fauna here. Like it's just very like dark and blackened and burnt. So unlike in Fall of the Damned, where we're seeing these people first enter hell and they have these looks of terror and horror at the unknown, they don't know what they're about to face. These people have been in hell for a while, it seems. They just seem like they're totally resigned to their fate and they're just in the midst of being tortured. There's no ambiguousness to this. Like they, they know what they're facing and they're, they're facing it. It is more lit, like you were saying, by the fire, but it's all in the background, which is interesting. All the light is almost obscured by that craggy stone. I think the biggest thing that is being lit up is just the facial expressions again. Both of the people being tortured and the sadness and despair and fear they have on their faces and just the terrifying faces of the demons, especially the gargoyle-like one, it's, its mouth is like wide open and its eyes, if you can call them eyes, are just sort of glowing out of these deep sockets. And it's really terrifying. I feel like I could almost hear this picture. Like I just hear the sound of like a really loud fire roaring and just screams and just echoing. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's like... It's like Bosch was here witnessing this. I, he's not the only artist to ever depict hell, but something about this is so immersive and so raw and just so terrifying. It's like, I don't know that any other artist has managed to capture that. Kind of like Kay said earlier, um, in a lot of Bosch's paintings, there's not like one true um, focal point. And I would say that this is very true of the terrestrial paradise where in the background, there's kind of a focus on this fountain of life. And then sort of in the middle, there's just a lot of lush fauna and greenery. And we can see a couple people sort of like surrounded by the greenery. And then sort of in the foreground, um, we see a lot of people sort of gesturing up. And this is supposed to represent um, like an intermediate stage where lives of the saved people um, were cleansed of their last sin before they're actually like admitted up into heaven. So that's what this is portraying. Such a high contrast to the hell paintings, not only in subject matter, but also technique, like you were saying. You can see every detail of this painting, including stretching way far off into the background. Everything is lit up by the sun and so lush and green. The Fountain of Life, which is depicted as so beautiful and ornate, and there's birds flying around it. It just seems like such a magical, light, beautiful thing. And then the people are joined by angels in these magnificent red robes. The rest of the people appear to be naked like the people in the hell paintings, but it sort of makes them seem more pure and innocent rather than, you know, vulnerable they're like, as we've said, they're sort of washed of their sins. So it's like a very um, proud nakedness, I would say. You know, it's like, it's unashamed. 
and all of their faces, instead of being twisted in terror or obscured by a demon or just looking down in total despair, they're all facing up towards the sun, towards the fountain of life, towards, you know, we can assume heaven. And so it's just really beautiful and hopeful and totally different from the hell panels, which is probably why there's a space between these when they're ordered into a quadriptic. So you can see a very clear contrast between your two choices. You get to go to heaven or you get to go to hell. They're obviously very different places. Even though like very characteristically of him, there's still a lot of details in this painting. I feel like this one has a clearer focal point than a lot of other ones. And it happens to be the angel in red, which is at the bottom right. But I think your eye is just very naturally drawn to it first. And so that's such a juxtaposition between the brightest thing and the hell panels, which is the fire. So the final panel of the visions of the hereafter is the ascent of the blessed. And I think to me, this is just like the clearest image out of all of them. It's very clearly these angels like carrying and guiding people up into what can only be described as heaven, um, but it's shown in sort of this tunnel-like structure um, where at the end there's just this like beam of like yellow light um, that's sort of like illuminating the whole piece. Um, and it's it's dark. So like I would say, you know, this almost has the same darkness as some of the hell panels, um, but it's a much cooler light. And, you know, we can see clouds. And as I said, like, it's all illuminated by this, like, heavenly glow. I would argue, though, these angels aren't as heavenly as a lot of other artists portray angels. Like, to me, they, like, they have, like, pointed wings. And, Kay, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I've, well... Because, and as you'll see when you see the images we post and as we continue to talk about some of Bosch's works, a lot of his people and creatures are very supernatural looking and fantastical looking. And so people kind of always thought that maybe he had an affinity for the occult or at least like to depict these like occult demons and figures. And it's funny, like he's depicting these heavenly angels, but to me, their wings are sort of like bird-like or fairy-like, which isn't necessarily what you see with other angels. Um, and there is just something like their bodies are like quite contorted. Their wings are quite thin and pointy. And they just seem more like a, like to me, they seem more like a fae creature or something than a typical Renaissance angel. They're funky. Yeah. It's like, I, they're not the typical like soft feathered wings that I feel like you would associate with angels. Like, honestly, when I view these, to me, it almost feels bat or even like um, pterodactyl. Like, I don't know. That's just like what comes to mind when I see these. Oh, I agree. Um, The bottom left angel, you actually just get a full on view of their back and both of their wings. And to me, their wings look sort of translucent and they have the details of like an insect wing, like a moth or a fly or something. There's still something just kind of slightly off about even Bosch's angels. Yeah. I will say the angel that is closest to like the beam of heaven that we can see of like heavenly light 
it to me has that traditional like angel look like Mm -hmm. it's in a white robe. It's got like white feathered wings. And so I almost wonder if that's saying something like, like once it's finally like in that final um, distance, like into heaven and like the beam of light is shown on it that like, then it reaches its true, like heavenly form. Hmm. So Total the a- conjecture there. Like, yeah, yeah. That's like speculation, but it is interesting that the angels are also being transformed, just like the people. Because um, I don't think that's often seen a lot, but it's a totally valid point in this. The whole vibe, though, because of that very Bosch-like way of depicting the people, it still connects with the other panels. And like you were saying, it still has that darkness um, where only certain things are illuminated. But I will say, looking at this piece, just because it's bathed in a blue light, it gives off a very calming vibe. Like just how I felt like when I was staring at the hell painting, I just felt like I was there. Like I could see it and smell it and hear it like sort of kind of the same thing here, but it just feels like cool and calm and serene. And, and I'm just always amazed by how Bosch can really capture that. I feel like when I'm looking at a lot of Renaissance art, it's beautiful, but it's sort of just flat and distant. And then you look at Bosch and it's like you're part of the scene. Like I, I can't exactly say what about it it is that makes you feel that way, but I don't know. I, it You just sort of get lost in his works. In typical Bosch fashion, we don't know exactly when this painting was created. Some sources just say that it was after 1490. Some narrow it down to in between 1505 and 1515. But again, we're right smack dab in the Northern Renaissance. It's believed these panels were owned by the Cardinal Grimaldi in Venice in 1521 because these like infernal landscapes were really popular amongst Italian collectors of the high Renaissance. So I think that's interesting. It's like we've talked about sort of the differences between this and like the rest of the Flemish like Renaissance, but also um, this kind of like style and topic of the painting was really coveted by people during the Italian Renaissance, even though I don't really feel like this is what they were painting. Again, like he just doesn't fit. He's just unique. So now that we've spoken about the panels all individually, just taking them as a whole work, um, combining them into a quadriptic. I mean, I suppose the message is very obvious, especially if this did end up in a church. You, you are seeing You know, once a soul faces its mortal end, is it going to heaven or is it going to hell? And the process to get to heaven is being saved and entering this paradise and being carried up into heaven by these angels. The process of going into hell is falling into this darkness and this fiery pit and being torn apart by demons for the rest of eternity. So um, I think it's very clear the contrast between the two. And I think a lot of religious art kind of tried to make hell as terrifyingly horrific as possible and heaven as amazingly beautiful as possible in order to, you know, convince people to live that virtuous life and that religious life and um, seek that heavenly reward. Um, But something about Bosch, like out of all of those religious works that were seeking to do that, like if that was Bosch's goal, like I think he was probably the most effective because his work is so <laughs> visceral and raw. He's not shying away from anything. You're just like, oh shit, I do not want that to happen to me. Like I don't want my throat slit by like a rat-like demon creature. 
no thank you. No thanks. To be saved and ascend up to heaven, <laughs> to the heavenly tunnel. Um, and, you know, we spoke about this being in the order that it's recently been seen in, which is from left to right, um, the fall into hell, hell, and then, you know, the paradise and then the ultimate ascent. Um, so because, you know, in the Western world, we tend to read from left to right. I think it sort of goes from like a horrific note to a hopeful note. And also a lot of paintings that depict God, um, casting judgment on people, whether they're going to heaven or hell, will often show him sending those condemned to hell to his left. And so that order makes sense. But also knowing Bosch and his like extreme pessimism and penchant for depicting hell, I could also totally see this be ordered in the opposite way. So it's like, oh, you know, these people are ascending into heaven and it's paradise and it's beautiful but then it's like it just gets slowly darker and darker as you look and then like ultimately you end up in hell like to me that's probably the way that Bosch did it because he uh I don't think he was one to end on happy notes well we see in his other triptychs that that's not the case like he doesn't tend to end with the happy scene like to me he tends to end with like the hellscape and the other two triptychs that we're going to look at today We'll get into that a little bit more. That's the reason why he is so well known, despite um, the very limited quantity of paintings that we can attribute to him. It's not his like religious heavenly scenes that people remember. It's the hellish ones and the fantasy based ones. And honestly, like it, they feel like a nightmare come to life. And I think that's why people. Um, enjoy them so much it's just totally unconventional and honestly like nothing that you have ever seen or will ever see some people theorize the dude was on drugs um some people theorize that he was like reaching some form of religious ecstasy or having some sort of visions because like that was a pretty common thing like in medieval times and during the renaissance for people to claim that they've like had some sort of vision or a visit from God or, or reach some sort of religious ecstasy. But like, I just, I don't know. There's, it that does, doesn't, despite the fact that he's painting religious imagery, I think it lacks the reverence maybe that some pieces have. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but some people have even speculated that there was in the place where he lived uh, like fungal contamination of rye bread that caused this epidemic of this disease that among other things like caused like insane hallucinations and delusions and things like that. And apparently there sort of is historical evidence for that. And so they're like, maybe this dude was just tripping balls and like, maybe he was, but I kind of just like to think that he's immortal figure <laughs> that way is like, literally like, he's like, yeah, that's this is what hell is and i'm just gonna show you guys like here it is because he just he's there's a certainty and some i don't even know how to ex explain it but i just see truth in his work despite it being the most outlandish stuff you've ever seen in your life 
I, I definitely like read the theories that he was like on drugs. I've also read the theories that like he was part of like a sect of the church that was against the church. And, you know, he was a heretic and he was part of this group that participated in like crazy orgies and, you know, sexualized everything. And I think that if you're going to argue that some artists, because, you know, this was claimed in, like you said, in medieval times that, you know, they were visited by God or they were shown what they needed to paint or shown what they need to do. If, if we're going to argue that that happened to, you know, middle medieval artists, then I think we argue that Bosch was visited by the devil himself mm-hmm. and given like a round trip ticket straight to hell to visit, take it all in and then come back to earth and tell us about it because it is insane. This piece that we just spoke about, the visions of the hereafter is probably out of the ones we're speaking about, at least his most tame and conventional one. They only get weirder from here. So as we've discussed, um, clearly Bosch has a certain affinity for showing these really visceral images of hell and punishment. And the triptych, The Last Judgment, is a perfect example of this. Yeah, triptych, as we said, is three panels. This time, the three panels are depicting the biblical last judgment or the rapture or the apocalypse. And we see the fall of man depicted on one side in which Eve is born, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and then they're chased out of the Garden of Eden, all while God witnesses this. In the central panel, we see Christ and the apostles overseeing the last judgment, so they're deciding who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. Underneath is a very apocalyptic scene in which people are being punished And a lot of these punishments symbolize the appropriate punishment for committing one of the seven deadly sins. And then the last panel seems to be in hell itself, in which Satan is presiding over the torture of people trapped in hell. So these panels fold closed. And actually, a lot of the time, triptychs were seen closed every day, except for maybe weekends, holidays special feast days, things like that. And so the scene on the outside of the triptych is much more tame. On the left, you see St. James, and he is going on a pilgrimage. He seems, you know, kind of weary and beaten down, but a pious and religious man. And then on the right, you see St. Hippolytus, who is dressed in the clothes of a noble and is surrounded by the poor who are begging. This is probably implying the two different kinds of people that would be judged by Christ, you know, a good, pious, humble man versus a greedy, less than moral man. You know, whether or not St. Hippolytus was actually a bad guy, I don't know, but he was considered the first anti-pope, which meant that he opposed the pope that was currently elected and didn't find him legitimate. And so, At the very least, at the time of his existence, the Catholic Church probably would not have found him a friend. This triptych stands out because it's painted in grisaille, which is a technique that all the colors washed out. It's painted just 
purely in shades of blacks, whites, and grays. It's very monochromatic. So that's all the more striking when you open the panels up and you see that it's very rich in color and very bright and very vivid and just an insane, fantastical scene. There's a serious juxtaposition between the um, triptych when it's closed versus when it's open. And when you open it up, it's like, it almost is like life has been like breathed into this art piece. I mean, there's so much color and it's just so vivid, um, which is something kind of different than we saw in afterlife panels when, where they were either, you know, really dark or, you know, just certain areas were very well lit. I think one of the most interesting um, aspects of at least the middle panel here is the seven deadly sins and how they can be tied to another art piece that Bosch did, um, which is the tabletop of the seven deadly sins. And in this tabletop, it actually shows like the specific punishments for each of the seven deadly sins. And there's definitely a comparison to be made there. And at least a few of the seven deadly sins can be picked out pretty easily in this triptych with very specific punishments, such as one that I find particularly disgusting. And that is, (laughs) so the punishment for the glutton that is shown here is he's being force fed from a barrel and we can see that there's this like demonic creature that is relieving himself into the barrel so it's you know implied that that is what this person is being forced to consume We can also see a woman who is most likely meant to represent lust who is standing on top of this kind of like building structure. And we can see a serpent like wrapping himself around her loin area, which I think is obviously both like a clear punishment for lust, but also can probably be tied back to the first panel, you know, where there's like the serpent that basically convinced Eve to participate in the original sin. Honing in on that first panel, We can tell we're on earth. We're in the Garden of Eden. It's very green and lush and beautiful. There's water, there's mountains, there's animals, but there's something that's just very wrong with the scene. It's the more you hone in on the details, because again, this is the perfect example of that Bosch signature where there's so much going on that your eye doesn't even know where to land. But as you start to follow the details, you see Eve being born And then immediately after you see Adam and Eve, like speaking to this half serpent, half man, taking the fruit. And then you see an angel exiling them from the garden. On top of that, you also see the animals who were originally created to live in harmony, attacking each other and eating each other. And at the very, very top, you see God encased in this glowing, like, halo, but below him, the clouds are dark and stormy. And there's actually hundreds and hundreds of angels that are fighting each other. They're like deep in battle and some of them are falling out of the sky. And so this is literally showing the angels falling, including Lucifer. So it's like very beautiful and one of his more normal looking panels, but you can tell like there's something very disturbing. And this is not just This is not the God to be loved so much as it is the God to be feared. The fire and brimstone, like, kicking ass, taking names, Old Testament (laughs) God. (laughs) Bully this guy. And I think what's interesting is that in the middle panel, which is 
you know, full of chaos, not quite so much as the, you know, far right panel, um, that we can see God very like clearly in the center of that panel as well, like watching over this. And like, obviously this triptych is called the last judgment. And I feel like it does kind of place an association there where when we would view all of these like demon creatures, terrorizing people, I guess the first thought wouldn't be that like God is there, like watching all of this happen. You know, I feel like we almost think of that would be like a very, like something that's very distant from God, but right here in the middle panel, you know, he also, he continues to have this like large, like halo of light surrounding him. Um, and he's got his angels surrounding him. And honestly, at the very top of this, it is a very like heavenly scene, but then, you know, I would say that's about 20% of the central panel is a more heavenly scene and all the rest of it is, you know, darker and, we again kind of seen those sort of like craggy cliff type things sort of. And then in the main part of the scene, um, there's some structures and there's just general like mayhem. Like there's a lot going on and we really start to see all of those out, out of this world creatures and like devils and demons that Bosch creates in his mind or maybe that he's seen firsthand. <laughs> it's debatable. Actually, I was going to make a similar point. I This is an oversimplification, but I feel like modern Christian sensibility kind of focuses more in on like the light, happy side of God. And he's he's often removed from, you know, the dark, twisted, fucked up shit. <laughs> that's, that's all the, you know, that's on earth and in hell. And I think that's different from the medieval view of God who, you know, was this bringer of wrath and who was someone to fear and who absolutely would punish you in life and after life. Um, And so he's right in the thick of this, like overlooking the whole thing, kind of like supervising it or making it happen. And so it's sort of it makes sense in the context of the time, but it's sort of weird today to look at that occurring. There is some crazy ass shit in this painting. Right at the very front, there is this little face that has like a little cloak pulled around it. And it's just attached to a pair of big ass feet. There's no body. There's no neck. There's no arms. It's just a head wrapped in a cloth stuck on a pair of feet. I don't understand. Can Bosh, you got some explaining to do. In the middle, there is a person that has been speared and their body is fully encased in an egg. Yep. Like it's just one, we see one arm, we see two feet, we see a head slightly peeking out, but it doesn't look like a human head. And then there's an arrow that has just gone straight through the egg. I don't know. I don't know. We see this person or actually a couple people running in, you know, what looks almost like a mouse wheel, but it has all of these spikes and scary things. And there's two demons like throwing this man out the top, sort of like onto these spikes. And it looks like they're pulling another one up. It almost seems like they, these two people running in these wheels are like turning some type of crank that, you know, this looks like some type of torture device. 
we also see this person that looks like they have like this weird suit of armor on, um, except for they've got this like wide brimmed sort of hat on and the proportions are all out of whack and they're carrying this half fish, half like rodent thing that has another smaller animal in its mouth. Obviously we're going to post pictures of this, but this is definitely one that it's important to like search for this triptych, pull it up on your computer or on your phone and find the highest pixel resolution you possibly can. Because I know when I was looking at it, like trying to just view like the normal picture of it, I couldn't even make out any of these details. So like, it's super important that like you go, you zoom in and you just like take this all in because honestly, I'm probably not even picking out the craziest parts here. Like these are just ones that just glancing I've seen. And I'm like, that's fucking wild. I know he also painted this little creature that looks like it has the body of a strawberry and strawberries pop up a lot in Bosch's work. We'll see even more in the garden of earthly delights. And we'll talk about that. But um, some people speculate that has to do with like the forbidden fruit, like strawberries are a symbol of that or they're a symbol of being promiscuous. I don't know, but weird things. Um, Looking at the piece as a whole, I would say it's very surrealist, obviously. Again, he's just way beyond his time. Like it seems so modern. The colors are so rich and vibrant and they, everything has this very modeled, very stylized look to it. Um, So to me, like, in a way, it does look very medieval, but in another way, it just looks futuristic, like even by today's standards. Again, like I said, it's there's so much going on that it's hard to kind of find any one focal point. But we sort of have one here because Christ is in the very middle and he's lit up by this blue-white light. But other than that, I mean, there's just so much chaos that your eyes just jumping around all over the place. I also kind of feel like the horizon line over all three panels in the background sort of is. Um, it carries. It, it, you know, yeah, it carries it, from it one. connected, but it also keeps like climbing upwards. So by the time mm-hmm. you reach the far right panel, there is no horizon. There's no sky anymore. You know, in the far left, you see blue mountains and you see sky and you see God. And then you zoom in a little bit in the center panel and it seems like the fiery burned brown scary background has like climbed up and Christ almost seems more enclosed and then Mm -hmm. by the end that apocalyptic scene has totally taken over Christ is fully gone you're fully surrounded by just this hellish landscape Um, but your eye can follow that visual and watch that change happen over all three panels Kay, you mentioned kind of the symbolism of strawberries and there's a lot of symbolism in Bosch paintings there's a lot of like sort of what I, what I think some people would view as like little insignificant details that he includes, but that we can see in several of his paintings. Um, some of these are pigs, which stand for gluttony. As you said, fruit that can stand for like carnal pleasure. There's a lot of rats and that's supposed to stand for lies against the church or filth. fish. We see a lot of fish in Bosch's paintings, um, or a lot of like half fish creatures that can stand for false prophets or lewdness. Flames obviously stand for the fires of hell. We see those typically in his 
like hell landscapes. We see a lot of musical instruments such as lutes and harps. Um, and those are, you know, meant to symbolize praising God and also the pursuit of earthly love. We see a lot of knives or a lot of weapons that's meant to symbolize punishment. Eggs are something that are seen in so many of his paintings and often in really interesting ways. As I said, like the person inside of an egg that has been speared. We see eggs throughout several of Bosch's paintings and they're often not just like an egg in space. They're, you know, utilized or even a person is kind of like part egg. Um, but those can symbolize a couple different things. One, it can be sexual creation. I think that makes a lot of sense. And another thing is that actually can be a symbol of alchemy. Eggs were used in alchemic literature, and that signified one of the pieces of laboratory equipment used in the attempt to create base materials into a higher spiritual form. I think in one way that could kind of be seen as an attempt to make something more spiritual, more pure, or in another way, it could be seen as almost like magical and potentially against the religion of the time. So kind of an interesting take there. His paintings often obviously have very clear religious messages or warnings. They're so insane. I sometimes wonder if there's like not a hint of satire or irony to any of them, but assuming that he was like dead serious and was just like trying to like convey like be a religious person, or this is what will happen to you, then I think that he probably would be using things that Christians would have viewed as blasphemous or or outside of their religion to show bad things or to be a part of his hellish landscape. I sometimes wonder about the castle-like structure that's depicted in the far right panel. Um, it seems like we're fully in hell at this point. And the scene is kind of dominated by this, it's kind of, it's a structure with an archway and it seems to have this red tint on top. And then out of the archway is coming this black demonic figure with these glowing yellow eyes and this like open red mouth. And he seems to have this like green turban like crown thing on and it's on his head and it's like flowing down his shoulders and like this is pure speculation, but I feel like the style of the architecture and of the tent and of the headdress is sort of like Middle Eastern. It like perhaps showing like Islam as like directly against their religion or something like that. I'm not sure. It's just, it's got a weird vibe. And then it's suggested that the figure in the turban is probably Satan himself. So instead of God overseeing these things, we're now fully in Satan's domain and we see all these people being tortured. Strawberries are appearing more prominently in this scene and they're large. There's even one person that seems to be rolling a strawberry up a hill or a strawberry like ball up a hill. It's sort of like Sisyphus vibes, like him rolling the stone up and down in the underworld. And the scene is also mostly brown and black and really dark. It's totally devoid of any of that lush life that we saw in the first panel. There are still touches of green that kind of tie them together visually. But whereas the green was very natural and earthy in the first panel, it now takes on this like glowing, eerie, evil vibe. And we mainly kind of just see it on demons and there's a dead fish and there's a guy spouting fire and they're this sickly green color and all of a sudden like there's just not a moment of reprieve or calm or sense in this scene it's just fully 
the worst of the worst. As you were talking about the castle-like structure, um, so above the archway where we can see Satan himself, um, there's another tier and there's sort of a curtain that's sort of pulled open slightly. And we see people just in absolute distress within that like opening. Um, And then on the very top of the castle, we see somebody's ass with a trumpet-like thing sticking out of it at the top. Um, It also looks like there is... Honestly, what it looks like is when you think of castles and you think of, you know, people playing the trumpets with the little flags that hang down on them, mm-hmm. like to alert, like, oh, here comes, <laughs> yeah, here comes <laughs> royalty. I mean, that's what it is. There's this like black tattered flag that's hanging off this like trumpet like thing, but the trumpet is shoved in this person's ass and their head is like stuck down sort of like the top of this castle like structure so we only see the backside of them but like how twisted is that I mean if you are ever struggling to remember which artist painted what just remember that like a bunch of naked asses doing a bunch of disturbing things is Bosch because that man loved to paint butts it's just the butt and nothing but in his painting the butt and it's there's usually something coming out or being shoved in it like it's (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But lots of butts. Lots of butts. So, like, obviously, this whole thing has a very strong message. But what fascinates me more than that is that it's just done in such a visceral, strange, unprecedented way. Like, if you Google The Last Judgment, you'll get a million different artists painting a version of The Last Judgment. But none of them will be quite like this. So I was obviously talking us through some of the symbolism that we can see in Bosch's paintings. And like I said, there's, there's several ones that sort of tie from one piece to another, such as the strawberries or fish or eggs. Several that we see in The Last Judgment actually are seen in Bosch's most famous work of art. If you've ever heard of Bosch before, it's probably for this next triptych that we're going to talk about. Truly, I think this is the greatest work of art of all time. I'm going here on record on our podcast saying that I think this is the greatest work of art of all time. I had a poster of this that I hung over my bed. People probably were like, what the fuck? This shouldn't go over your bed. This isn't, it looks happy. Like when you glance at it, two thirds of this triptych are this beautiful, well lit, almost just like, I almost think of it as being like, I don't know. It's like a fantasy land. Like it's just exactly where you'd want to be. But then you start to take a closer look and you realize, well, wait, that's, that's a little twisted. And then obviously if you focus on the last panel, you quickly realize that this is just as hellish and nightmarish as all the rest of the paintings Bosch was doing. And of course I'm talking about the garden of earthly delight. Which sounds like a beautiful name. Like you, you're probably listening to this and going, "Ooh, that sounds really pretty. I want to go look at the Garden of Earthly Delights. I think you should probably brace yourself because it's a little more than that. This above all others is one that you could stare at every day for the rest of your life and you will still not see and understand everything that's happening in it. It's insane. I mean, it's insane. I've never never seen a piece of art like this before. I don't think we ever will again. 
I think you're probably right when you say it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest pieces of all time, just because there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. Unless you are like overtly a Bosch copycat, you have not and will not make a piece of art like this. I think it's interesting that you said that you could look at this every day for like the rest of your life and you would still find new details. And I agree with you a hundred percent. So to me, what's wild is thinking that one like man painted every detail in this. It's un it's truly unbelievable. Not only just painstaking, tedious work and also just the sheer imagination, but again, every single tiny little mini scene that's happening over these three panels. And this is a large painting. It's, it's all incredibly unconventional, unprecedented. We haven't seen these things before. Yes. Some of it is based in convention. We do see things like Adam and Eve, heaven and hell, but you zoom in on the details and you're seeing things. I mean, I, I sound like a broken record, but I don't know how one man conceived of everything you can visualize in this painting without having some sort of, I don't even, I don't know. I'm going off on that tangent again, but I've just <laughs> never seen something so unique in my life. No, I mean, like you said, this, this work of art is more than 12 feet wide. It is huge. It is very, very large. And I mean, there's just an impossible level of detail that is shown in this painting. I mean, truly, there are just looking at it. It's overwhelming to look at. It really is. You almost have to take it and like dissect it piece by piece. And I don't even just mean panel by panel. I mean, just like inch by inch, truly, to Mm -hmm. be able to actually see what all Bosch has captured in this piece. I mean, it's, I just already said it's unbelievable, but it just, I think there's a quote that I found and I think it's just really accurately summarizes how this painting makes you feel. And it says to write about Hieronymus Bosch's triptych known to the modern age as the garden of earthly delights is to attempt to describe the indescribable and to decipher the indecipherable an exercise in madness. Which I love that line because a, I feel like Bosch had to be mad to come up with this. Definitely. B, you, you can't help but feel like his intent was to drive the viewer mad because there's, yes, there's balance and composition and a story to this piece, but there's also so much just chaos and randomness and your eye can't find a place to rest and you have no clue what's going on and you're just, dri- <laughs> you're just driven to madness looking at this. And then just everything you see within it is just utterly mad. It, it truly is. So sort of the breakdown of the panels on the left-hand side, we have the garden of Eden sort of like we've seen before um, even in the last judgment, but it's a little more like I would say specific than that, which sort of showed the progression. So we see God with Adam and Eve in the foreground. We see lots of animals. Um, We see this pool of water in the center with sort of this crazy pink fountain like structure coming out of it. The far right side is hell. We've also seen this frequently. Typically he does show hell on the right hand side. And then in the middle, this is kind of where like the meat of the composition is. This is what is like fully fantasy based. Really. We don't see stuff like this in the rest of Bosch's painting. It's, it's usually one or the other. It's like, we see like the garden of Eden or hell. And in this garden of early delights, it's like, 
paradise on earth almost, you know, it's, it's truly fantastical. I mean, it's, there's so many little details. There's so many hidden meanings and individual little scenes within this that I don't know how somebody came up with them. I don't. And like, like is typical of Bosch on the surface, it looks bright and beautiful. It looks like paradise. It looks like these people are having the time of their lives. It's called earthly delights, but you zoom in a little closer and you see that just things aren't quite what they seem. There's some off-putting things that you just maybe don't expect to see. And you, you feel that something is wrong. Um, even again in the garden of Eden panel, which the garden of earthly delights panel is the largest by far. The two on either side, Eden and hell are a lot narrower, but even when you're in Eden, you see like a lot of animals and they seem to be living in harmony, but then you zoom in and like some of them are already attacking each other and like killing each other, eating each other. You see some like really weird, strange creatures. And then his fountain, there's something very like off-putting about his fountain. It's this weird fleshy pink and it's not like any fountain you or I have ever seen. It's very alien. Like, like I feel like you would see it in like star Wars or something like not a medieval painting. It's very strange. Um, and it is like right in the middle of the scene. So it's kind of dominating the image in a way. And it's directly above like God or Christ who is dressed in the exact same color. Like, I don't really know what that means. Um, and then, in this panel and in all of the panels, the horizon line is very high and it's zoomed very far back. So you kind of have this bird's eye view as if you're just viewing this whole thing happening underneath you. And so you just, there's too many details to possibly take in, but you zoom in and it's just like, what the hell is happening? Um, and that's just Garden of Eden, which is supposed to be the happy, perfect place. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And I think we see, so both Garden of Eden and Garden of Early Delights, I think the immediate thing is like we see that green, lush color um, that we only see in a few of Bosch's paintings. Like it's not that like really dark look. It's not, there's, I would say even the hell portion of this is not as dark and there's more dimension to it. There's more color to it. Like there's, Mm -hmm. you know, it is, darker in comparison to the other two panels, but it's not like we've seen it before. Only like the very furthest points to me are reminiscent of the other hells that we've seen in his other pieces, you know, the foreground and even, you know, the area in the middle is very well lit. You know, we can make out all the details of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if this makes a lot of sense, but like to me, this one is the most stylized looking and surreal, Mm -hmm. but also like, all of the colors are like unnaturally vibrant, even the dark colors. Like they, they're not earthy or muted. There's something vibrant about them. And then they're all very like enclosed within their own shapes. Like, I don't know. They're filling the form. They're not bleeding out into brush strokes or, or softly fading away. I don't know. It's got this like almost like computer generated look to me. Like it's like overly modeled and, overly colored and the colors are just, I don't know, something very artificial. It, to me, honestly, like it looks like something out of Disney. 
just like at first glance, like all the colors and just the way, like it's so stylized, like you said. And I totally agree. Like this doesn't look like something that somebody painted. I mean, it looks like something that was done on a computer or, I mean, like we talked about the fountain in the garden of Eden. And then also in the middle panel, there's these sort of structures in the back that are that same kind of pinkish color. They have like an alien like quality. They do. And they even have, like, it looks like they have on this, like this greenery sprouting from the top of it. So they almost feel like there's, they almost feel alive. Like they're sort they have sort of the shape about them and um, these details that are kind of plant-like and very ethereal. And at the same time though, they're very geometric and despite seeming organic, they don't really have organic shapes. Like a lot of them have spheres on the bottom and these jutting towers out of the top. And then they pedal off from there. They have spikes or, you know, there's no building could be made to look like this. It's like Alice in Wonderland on LSD (laughs) at a rave. I don't know. It's beyond anything you've ever seen. If you haven't noticed, we try to start describing a lot of this stuff and we ourselves sort of get grow speechless. No one no one can. It's, <laughs> it's funny because it's like I promise you we know what we're talking about and like we're really trying our best to like provide quality content on this because honestly, I feel like we're both so passionate about this piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, this is my favorite piece of all time. Like I am just so drawn to this piece. I absolutely love this piece. But as the quote I read said, like us even trying to describe this to you and sort of like format this totally otherworldly piece of art into words that make sense and are coherent is impossible. I mean, it's like, I, I know how I feel looking at this painting and I know that there's so much I want to say about it, but when I try to put it into words, it's impossible. I mean, it, besides just kind of trying to describe to you what we see and, you know, we can talk about the symbolism and we can talk about, oh, this weird thing that we find in there. I mean, truly you're going to have to look at it yourself because it's like, we will definitely not do it justice. We could do it. Our entire podcast could be solely dedicated to this piece. And you still, like, we still couldn't help you arrive at any one conclusion. It's like if I, it's like if I put you on a rocket ship, sent you off to this planet in another galaxy, had you stand and watch them for 20 minutes, brought you back and like wanted you to fully explain like their culture and society to me. And like in any eloquent way, like you would just be like overwhelmed and like, (laughs) Speechless. And like, that's what I feel like when I'm looking at this. I'm like, this is not of this world. Well, I feel like I've caught us both. Like we start to talk and then it's like, and then, uh, uh, cause it's like, where do we, where do we go from here? To me, what stands out more in this piece, which I think is saying a lot are the easily recognizable things. Mm-hmm. Like there's clearly an owl. There's clearly like some ears carrying a knife. That's clearly like a loot and, but it's to me, those things like immediately pop out the things that like my eye and brain can immediately comprehend. You kind of find comfort in those. It's like, when I look at the owl, I feel like, okay, I understand. I'm grounded. (laughs) I'm grounded. And then my eye, my eye trails off a centimeter and I'm like, okay, now what the fuck am I looking at? (laughs) Because yes, there's an owl, but the owl is on top of this branch type thing 
that is rested on like two people that are all wrapped together, but we don't see their heads. And like, is the owl their head? I don't know. And they're holding like apples or some type of fruit. And it just doesn't make any sense. Like as soon as you look past the owl, your brain is back to like (laughs) non-comprehension. To zoom back out a little bit, you know, and speak about the thing as a whole so we can dive into the Garden of Earthly Delights and try to explain to you what's going on. Um, on the left, Garden of Eden, like we said, that's pretty clearly the Garden of Eden, despite having a Bosch-like twist. On the right, hell, we'll get to that in more detail, but it's clearly hell, you know, despite being Bosch's unique version of hell. Garden of Earthly Delights in the middle is less clear. I feel like it's more open to interpretation. Why was he painting this? I kind of feel like he's saying like, all right, the Garden of Eden represented like the pinnacle, like the most perfect, the the paradise. And then obviously hell is the worst of the worst. Um, Garden of Earthly Delights, I suppose, is kind of showing like every type of sin and promiscuity and, you know, just temptation that a human could give themselves into. And it's delightful while it lasts but I suppose it's saying the punishment is hell because that's kind of a theme within Bosch's more religious works I can't decide what I feel like when I look at this because like in a way it's kind of like a great Gatsby party like it looks fun and beautiful and almost like (laughs) and the you know the central panel is you know the same size as the other two combined you know it's like double the size of the other two um and and so in some ways, yes, I can see that it would read as like, if you participate in all of this sin and, you know, this is what you're destined for, like hell. But in other ways, I mean, it it looks like the happiest of places. It looks like a place where you just want to go and spend your time. It's so lush and beautiful. And, you know, it sort of draws you in. There's the pool of maidens right in the center. And then there's like a very large pond with a fountain and all of these pink structures around the back. I mean, it, it really draws you in. And especially when you first look at it, it, it doesn't look wrong. I mean, clearly there's very, you know, underlying like sexual themes going on here and a really weird mix of animals where he took lots of parts and pieces from different ones and kind of combined them in there's total you know off the wall things that we've never seen before like a couple riding along in a bubble on this you know pink floral thing (laughs) again I'm going speechless because I just don't know how to describe this um well, I think he's, you know, he's trying to make the point. It's like temptation leads to hell. Just, and I say that because he came from a really moralizing time in which a lot of art depicted that and uh, religious people firmly believed that. Um, but at the same time, he makes temptation look really tempting. Like I found this quote that said like, while the garden of earthly delights is as a whole, a strong condemnation of sensual pleasures, the work is nonetheless unquestionably pleasurable to contemplate. You know, the colors are very pleasant. It looks like a scene just filled with revelry and excitement and happiness. And these people, I guess, are unaware of what those consequences are going to lead to. But I guess that's sort of The point he's making is how easy it is to fall into these things. And like, again, we could spend a whole podcast just like 
zooming in on the details of this. Um, and I think we would be happy to do that, but, uh, you definitely just need to look for yourself. You know, everyone pretty much is naked and being very promiscuous. There's a lot of sexuality, a lot of sensuality. You know, we spoke about the strawberries before there's strawberries all over this, you know, symbolizing that forbidden fruit, that, um, promiscuousness, despite the fact that there's so much going on, this is sort of the central panel, the garden of earthly delight sort of is broken into three sections. There's the foreground, the middle ground, and then the background, um, the backgrounds where all the structures are and you see the sky and you see these winged creatures. And then you go to the middle section where the central focal point, if there is one is the pool of maidens where all of these promiscuous ladies are bathing and they're encircled by these crazy animals. And then the foreground is where most of the action is happening, where most of the weirdness is happening. And I mean, I don't even know what to point out to you, but it's just, um, it's a place like none ever experienced on earth, despite being called earthly delights. (laughs) Um, And it's intense. And then of course we find out the consequences of these actions when we get to hell and the far right panel last judgment in comparison was a little bit more conventional you know demons torturing these humans and satan and and then versus this where we see like giant instruments creatures that are instruments um the focal point of this is a man thing <laughs> that is looking so it's he's like bend over touching knees to your elbows he's got his like ass in your face and he's like squatted and he's sort of like looking back except his body and booty is an egg and it's a broken egg in which there are figures and things inside it and climbing in and out of it and he like has these leg like things and like like, tree stumps yeah it's i like and he's like got it's almost like he has this like wide brim hat on but he's like staring right at the viewer which is disconcerting and he's right in the middle and he's this creamy white versus like the blackness of the rest of the hell scene and i don't know what in the hell he's supposed to represent i also would like to say that the tree trunks end in these little boats because there's kind of this lake this like deep black lake that kind of runs through the middle there um and his tree trunk legs you know sprouting out of his egg cracked egg body attached to the wide brim hat um, are standing in these little canoe boats. He has a very classical face though. He looks like a, he does. He looks like a Da Vinci like face, you know? And then, but this is like larger than life, huge scale because on top of this like wide brim hat like thing, we see other little creatures and even people and the people are like tiny on top of there. Mm. And then there's also this organ shaped <laughs> um peat thing thingy um that has guys there's almost <laughs> like this element of of comedy to this whole thing like i don't know if that was intentional but like i look at this now and it's like it's so absurd that it's, it's absurdity comical. yeah it's like it's surrealism bleeding into Dadaism that it's nonsensical. It's it, but it's at the same time, it's like clear. He's trying to tell you something. It's clear that each panel is not only telling a story, but they're intimately connected. Um, and we see that just despite the fact that, you know, the general idea is there. It's like 
from paradise to temptation and sin to hell. But I mean, other than that, we, we don't really know how to take this whole piece, but it's obvious they connect garden of Eden and garden of earthly delights look very similar. Um, and even though hell gets really dark and, and totally devoid of that beautiful lush greenery and flora and fauna, it still has the water. And what's really noteworthy is that the horizon line in all three of these panels line up. So it's, so in a way, despite them being three panels, it's like you're looking at one big scene. You can start your eye at the very left corner of the horizon line and follow it all the way through Eden, through the garden of earthly delights, all the way to hell. And it all connects. So despite what he was actually trying to tell us, he's trying to tell us that this is a continuous story. Um, It's just interesting how Garden of Eden is pretty sparsely populated. It's mostly animals. You kind of see that weird, strange fountain. And then all of a sudden you see all of these structures as if man has like continued to make these things and you see the revelry and you see the the water. Then you get to hell and the, the ground has turned black and brown and the water seems like black or gray, or maybe it's even ice at this point. The modern alien futuristic structures are all gone the buildings that are in the background are very jagged and they look like they're being burned down there's smoke there's fire but there's still those pinks and blues and vibrancy and comical scenes and egg butts and and there's i think one of the like more well-known little parts of this there's like this bird-like creature that's currently like consuming a human and he's got a little cauldron turned upside down on his head that he's wearing like a little hat he doesn't have there's no base to his body instead there's just this blue egg-shaped kind of goo that's coming out and we can see people being pushed out through this goo falling into this hole in the ground where we can see you know faces of the damned poking out and then there's a person kind of off to the side vomiting into this hole but I think a lot of people like fixate on the bird with the cauldron on his head because it's it's a pretty like eye-catching feature another one is there's a lute with sort of a harp kind of jammed in the side of it and crushed underneath that is a man and there's music, like music notes written on his, on his derriere. And a lot of people comment on that as well. It's, as we said, it's absurd. There are so many weird details here. There's like this teepee-like thing, except, which like, would Bosch even know what a teepee was? I don't know. But it looks like it's like, cut from a heart like there's like these like veiny things coming off of it it's very red and very shiny in it and there's like people standing at it and you only see their legs and that's really weird i feel like furthering my theory that this guy is like an immortal or a time traveler or from the future or abducted by aliens at some point it's like not only is like the the whole vibe and the whole style very futuristic but there's also like people in like glass or acrylic tubes and there's people with like you know these spheres over their heads like an astronaut helmet or something and like there's just these stuff that doesn't seem like it would have been thought up in medieval 
times. So confusing. It does not look like it was painted in the late 1400s. It does seem like it very much connects, though, to the biblical story of the earth, because just like the last judgment, this triptych closes and there's a view on the outer panels as well. This one is also painted in grisaille, so it's those gray colors again, but it's like a sphere. Um, I suppose it's a planet. I suppose it's earth. The bottom hemisphere of the sphere, you see like land and like a solid shape. The top of it seems to be clear, transparent. There's like clouds near the top of it. It's still very modern and futuristic and otherworldly and weird. Um, And then up in the uppermost left corner is a little, little tiny figure of God and he's holding an open book. Um, And there's an inscription at the top of the panels that translates into for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm, which comes from the Psalms. And I think people speculate this is either one of two things. This is either the beginning of the story the panel's telling, and it's the third day of creation in which like plants and water um, and just flora and fauna are being created, or you close this panel and it's the end of the story and it's the depiction of the flood, which was sent by God to cleanse the earth once it was just overrun by sin. So either way, it ties into the story of earth. It ties into the story of Christianity, but in a very, very, very weird way. I almost feel like it would be more believable that that would be like a depiction of the flood. Just like, I I don't know. I feel like there's something symbolic about like you close the triptych, like on this crazy wild scene. And then it's like, you know, God's all of this. And then he was like, Nope. <laughs> He said, oh, my God, never mind. Oh, he said, oh, my me. Oh, my me. <laughs> no, but I, I kind of agree. It's like, oh, this is where I started. I had such hope for this place. Oh, it's all hell is breaking loose, literally. Oh, everyone's in hell. I'm just going to start over. Obviously, there is more in this painting than you could ever take in in one sitting. But if you would ever like to try, it is located along with a lot of Bosch's other works at Museo del Prado in Madrid, Spain. To take a look at all of these beautiful but extremely twisted artworks that we talked about today, follow us on Instagram at Gothic Girls Pod. We're also on Facebook at Gothic Girls Pod. And if you have a comment, have a question, have a topic you want to see us discuss, you can email us at gothicgirlspodcast at gmail.com. So H, do you feel like we did your favorite man justice? I think we definitely tried our best (laughs) we scratched the surface (laughs) we scratched the surface I don't think that's anything that's not saying anything negative about us and our ability to comprehend and (laughs) (laughs) you know comment on art but I think Bosch is just he's very twisted and you know he's one that I mean clearly the experts even agree that 
to try to make sense of his pieces is an exercise in madness. And Mm -hmm. we might be crazy, but we're not as mad as Bosch is. So (laughs) I I think we, it was a valiant effort. Yes. I think that no matter who you are, this piece is going to draw you in. You might love it. You might hate it. You might be confused about it. You might be overwhelmed. You might have no clue what to think of Bosch and his works, but I can almost guarantee you, you won't ever encounter anything quite like this again. (laughs) (laughs) It's very true. And now we have to say that our next episode is our last of this year's spooky season series. Oh, it's been so fun. It has been so fun. I, I just think there is something exciting and different about talking about spooky art and, you know, spooky places. And I mean, Bosch is just in a category of his own. And I think our final episode is quite possibly the spooky, scary, creepiest of them all. Would you agree, Kay? It's perfect for Halloween week. Join us while we talk about some of the most architecturally significant and unbelievably haunted places. The veil between this world and the next one is at its thinnest this time of year. So Maybe I'll finally get my ghost boyfriend. Ghost Malone. <laughs> if you're out there. Well, you'll grow to love us. XOXO. Gothic Gothic girls. girls.